Miscarriage and infant loss are experiences that disproportionately affect indigenous women and women of color. What God is Honored Here is the first book of its kind, a literary collection of voices of these women coming together to speak about the traumas and tragedies of womanhood. Editors Shannon Gibney and Kaukalia Yang are joined here by writers Michelle Barak, Sonia Kamal, Jamie Nakamura-Lin, and Sima Reza. This edited conversation was recorded in July 2020. So my name is Shannon Gibney. I'm one of the co-editors of the anthology, What God is Honored Here, Writings on Miscarriage and Infant Loss by and for Native Women and Women of Color. My co-editor is Kao Kalia Yang. Um, and the book was published in October 2019 by University of Minnesota Press. We have some of our amazing contributors here. We have Jamie Nakamura-Lynn, Michelle Barak, Sonia Kamal, uh, and we also have Seema Ressa here. Um, and so we're going to talk a bit about the book itself. Uh, we're going to talk a bit about what it's been like eight months or so now having the book out in the world. So thanks for joining us. Hello, this is Kalia speaking. Thank you, Shannon, for leading us off. It's been nearly a year. It doesn't feel like it's been a year, partly because we've been in a pandemic. Um, after the publication of a book, generally you spend a whole year at least going through bookstores and organizing readings and gathering folk. This has not been the case. Um, we started out strong by doing lots of readings around different communities across the nation. But for the last few months, it's been very quiet on my end. The, this has been the quietest book I've had the privilege and the honor of working with on. How has it been for the rest of you? This is Michelle Borak. Yeah, time is, is sort of compressed, um, just in general, because I, I think uh, I'm calling in from Mongolia. We went into lockdown in January, um, you know, sort of watching the rest of the world carry on. I was like, oh, that would be nice. But now here we are and we're all in the same boat. Um, but yeah, time is time is really compressed, and and, and it didn't really occur to me to think about um, what Kalia raised. Is just that you know you guys would have continued with the readings and the events, which were just really amazing to see from a distance. Um, you guys had some really great great events and conversations at those events. I'm assuming, um, and it would have been amazing to see those continue. Hi, yeah, this is um, Sonia Kamal. I'm the uh, author of two novels, Unmarriageable and An Isolated Incident. And um, it's been, it's for the book world, I think it's just, it's it's been hard in general, but the book world seems to be particularly um, hit by this. I, I actually, my, my second novel was uh, launched in, An Isolated Incident was launched in um, England yesterday. And it's just um, because because publishing has pushed so many books forward, it's just because everyone is very confused with what to do and how to do it because timelines have all shifted for bookstores and everyone's still getting a hang on Zoom and how to do things. So it's been it's been a surreal experience to have. On the other hand, there's also gratitude for those of us who are you know able to stay safe and and still able to do things um, at this time. Yeah, this is. Seema, I'm calling in from Maryland. I'm the author of When the World Breaks Open, a memoir and a constellation of half-lives. 
which is a collection of poetry. Um, this, the essay that I um, was able to contribute to the anthology is from my memoir, and it is about my experience with having to decide um, to have a late-term abortion uh, because my son was very sick. And in this time of being home and watching like what's happening in the world and the attacks on women's rights, you know, the events have had been so sacred and beautiful, the two readings that I went to, um, but to put it on the internet feels much scarier. And, um, and that's been an interesting thing to be like, well, I, if I want the world to know, I guess the whole world has to know. Um, and that's been kind of a scary and liberating thing. Hi, this is Jamie Nakamura Lynn, and I'm a writer from outside Chicago. You were mentioning that it's been almost a year, and it seems so strange that 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 time has passed because it seems like such a a long time. You know, it seems like ages and ages, and it also seems very short that I was able to be with some of you at um, St. Kate's at the reading, which was such a beautiful moment just to spend time in person and now thinking back on what it means to be in community and now how most of our community is virtual. I just think back on that, that moment really fondly. And I think the reaction I've had from people has been like a slow burn for this book. You know, recently I had a friend who I gave the anthology to and she said, I know you gave this to me, but is it okay if I give it to one of my friends? Because I think she really needs it right now um, because she had just had a miscarriage. So it's cool to me to hear stories like that, you know, a long time after the book came out about it going hand to hand from person to person of people who need it um, at that time in their lives. Um, and that woman was also a woman of color. And I think being a person of color, um, I just felt like there weren't any books that really spoke to me when I was going through these things, which was why like it was been such a meaningful experience to be part of this book and to see that it's been it's continuing to be shared with that community is really wonderful. Yeah, this is Shannon uh Gibney again and I yeah, I like the the image of the slow burn or um I think Kalia even called it, you know, trying to light a fire in in a damp forest. <laughs> um because it's, you know, nobody really wants to talk about dead babies. <laughs> it's just that the topic of the book itself is just really hard, but that's also why it's so needed. Kalia and I have said before how we, yeah, very lucky. There was a lot of local interest in the book, right, when it came out. And so we had a lot of readings and events, and both of us are pretty well established in at least in Minnesota. Um, and so we have, you know, our events typically fill and um, that wasn't necessarily the case for this book, but every event, someone would come up to us and just kind of commiserate. You know, I had one woman at a reading at Next Chapter Bookstore and she's probably in her fifties, a uh, white woman. And she said, you know, after you read your piece, um, and of course, she's you know she's crying. Like a lot of the folks who tell their share their stories with us um, are, and she's like, I never was able to just say what happened. I was never able to just say he my baby died. She's like I, 
I just, the language that I used, I had to like dance around it, you know, for everybody else, kind of because they just couldn't bear it. And she's like, and I never realized what a weight that was before. She's just like, I just exhaled um, listening to your story. And that was just so moving to me. Um, so stories like that, we were talking um, in a radio program. There was um, probably a 50-something Native American gentleman who was talking about how he had a sibling, you know, between him and his younger sister, uh, younger sibling, you know, that his mom mentioned it from time to time. But, you know, you could see that it's, it's part of his, their family story in a certain way, but perhaps not necessarily in a way that has been, I guess, like as healing as it, as it could have been. So I, I think the, this book, like so many others, is multi-layered. And I think just in quote-unquote normal non-COVID-19 times, I think that it's something that is just going to take a little while to get out into all those hands of community folks um, who really need it. But I have heard like Jamie from actually quite a few folks in my community. It's so uh, gratifying to have something to actually give um, my friend or my sister or somebody in my family that's just experienced a loss. Um, and that's also gratifying as well. Um, COVID-19 times, I mean, I do feel like, yeah, we've had to just pivot. All of us have to be just open to whatever's going to unfold because nobody really knows. Obviously, it's not exactly what we would have wanted, but um, it also presents some other opportunities in terms of people being able to engage with the book virtually. University of Minnesota Press has had it on their website all summer uh, for folks to download for free, which is really awesome as part of this um, racial justice initiative. Um, so, yeah. You know, I had a conversation with my dad. My father doesn't, um, he doesn't ask me very often about the books that I'm writing or the books that have come out. But he was, he was there at the first night of the launch events. And he heard me read from my mother's story, from their story. Recently, my dad looks up, he looked up at me. I was in the garage with him. We were swatting flies. This is an activity that I do often, swatting flies in the garage. And he says to me, you know that book that you uh, that you published last year that's been very quiet? I knew exactly which one he was talking about. He said, I think about it so often. He, he, my father said to me, you know, sometimes you write the books that everybody wants to read. And sometimes you're in a place where you have to write the books that, that the world needs. The world will never know it, you know, until it does, until it does. And I, I just, I looked at my dad and I said, I hope you're right. But shortly after that conversation, when George Floyd was was murdered brutally here in Minneapolis, the, the very last words that he said, he called her his mom. My mother, when I visited my mom and dad, my mother broke down. And she said, I'm crying and I'm crying for his mother. I'm crying for myself. I'm crying for all of the mothers in your book. I didn't expect these connections to happen in my home in these ways. But I think that's one been one of the most, um, one of the big gifts of this collection, Shannon. I, I have not told you about this. Or, and, and all of you, wonderful, powerful, strong women. But I think these personal conversations that are coming forth are changing me as much as it is changing the landscape that I hope this book enters into. 
Thank you for that, Kalia. Yeah, and I just feel like, you know, I've had people tell me, like, you know, your most, you know, ardent supporters for this book, you, you're not, you're probably not going to hear from them, right? Like those conversations that you have, you know, with your dad in the garage swatting flies, you know, it's not in front of a podium, you know, it's not in at, at some big launch event. It's just the daily, just the dailiness of life, you know, but creating a space for that. I mean, to me, that's, the aim of art is it should be creating space when there for things that there's not space for right now. I'm curious because so many of I think all of us are writers. Um, your contributions to what God has honored here. How does that differ from the other work that you do? This is Jamie. I think for me, actually, the piece that I did here kind of launched me on a new path of of writing. Um, because I was having such a hard time writing about um, my miscarriage. I was having such a hard time writing about my father's impending death, and I didn't know how to write about it. And then when I saw the call for this anthology, I knew I really wanted to be part of it. And I started thinking about how I could write about it. Um, And then I started using the lens of Japanese mythology to kind of talk about these really difficult things. And after that, I started using that for a lot of other writing I've been doing so it kind of was the the launch point or the beginning of me being able to to write in a, a, a new and different way. And now I've been having a, a lot of essays that follow in the same vein. I think it has just helped me realize the power of writing about this and how I can use that in, in my other writing too, or a lot of other difficult topics. This is Michelle Borak. I can, I can jump in. I haven't actually... Um been writing a lot so but I but I've recently um kick-started things again it's weird because I think my relationship with that that essay in some ways like a a door kind of closed maybe I'm saying like the the hardest thing and and now like everything should be easier (laughs) to talk about like after talking about the worst thing that ever happened but yeah it's just a weird time to pick up you know, momentum again. It, it was such a heavy thing to write about and then to have published that it's strange to think about what the next thing might be. So I've done, you know, other things, um, writing related, but I haven't written anything that's been published since. So it's, it's weird. It's a bit heavy. I, I don't know what it is. This is Seema. I'm a performing poet and I read a lot of uncomfortable things on stage, but this I had never read before, before the book launch, this particular tragic and traumatic experience. And similar to what Michelle said, like that unlocking of, or that breaking down of that barrier of like, oh, I can give this to a room to hold with me. I, I think it was Shannon who said nobody wants to talk about dead babies. Nobody wants to, right? That's just like not the way that you necessarily, you don't want to be the one to bring that into the space. Um, but similar to what Shannon was saying, when I have brought it, it's amazing how many other people have this same experience. And what I keep thinking about is what else do I think is so completely 
privately, terribly my own that actually is shared pretty widely? And where can I, else can I find that courage in my writing to put it on the page, to enter, you know, through the doorway of the page into that story? And then maybe um, find those points of connection in the world, which is, you know, why I write. So it's been it's been amazing to to be out in the world with this book. Um, this is Sonia. You know what what I found uh, for miscarriage and and things like this is that it's not drawing room conversation like hello, my name is, how are you? This happened to me. But once you start sharing with people everyone suddenly starts telling their stories too. And you realize that as much as there's willful silence around it, because it is a discomforting subject and people are shy about also not so much not wanting to share, but there seems to be, they don't want to upset anyone by talking about it. And then, but I've always found that when it does come up, that that the upset factor goes away very fast and people are actually glad that it was mentioned because everyone seems to have a story if not of their own then of their mothers or sisters or friend or or someone and um and that connection then definitely uh does become very strong and 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 then the, the conversations just keep going once they're once they're allowed to be out in the open one thing that that um made it i mean my my family uh my my in-laws in mongolia don't speak english so they don't have copies of this book I'm, but um it actually it, it's sort of culturally fairly taboo that that i would have even done this like this this wouldn't have happened uh like if there was a a mongolian version of kalia and shannon and, and they wanted to, to publish this book um they wouldn't they, they would have had a really hard time um, you don't talk about the dead. Um, you don't talk about dying. You certainly don't talk about dead babies when there are pregnant women in your family. Um, you don't talk about hysterectomies when you have, you know, I mean, there's just so much. It, it To me, I mean, I, I you know, as an American, I, I see that as well. But like living here um, and within Mongolian culture, it's just, it's like amplified and yeah, and, and that was something that was hard to deal with when it happened, but it hasn't, in some ways, it, it hasn't really gotten any easier. And so, you know, being able to say, you know, with, with other books that I've I've been in and, and other anthologies, I've been able to, to share sort of the excitement of, here it is, here's my name, and, you know, this is exciting. And with this book, it's really difficult to do. And I explained to my husband what it was about. And, and he just, you know, he, he, he knew I was writing it, um, or he knew that I, 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 it was going to be published, but when he saw the book, he was just, you know, like, ah, like my weird American wife who talks about things that shouldn't be talked about, you know, <laughs> like, I, I don't know, it's a little strange um, on, on that level. So I'm, 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 family back home, um, you know, it, it's, it's a bit different. There's a different, obviously a different understanding of what it meant to be part of this book and what the book represents uh, for the larger, you know, the larger universe of, of readers. I hear you, Michelle. In my, I am wrong and I come from a refugee background. In my community, when we talk about the heartaches, so often it's connected to the war. But I know that every single woman in my life 
my grandmother, my aunts, um, they've all lost children. They've all had miscarriages along the way. And it isn't until, you know, it wasn't until I experienced my own loss that my, my mother's older sister, my, she came to visit and she sat down and she looked at me and I looked at her and she said, you know that the longer you have with someone, the more you love them. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, you know, your baby Jules was 16 weeks. I, I've never told you, but do you know that I had, um, I had a miscarriage at five months? I had a stillbirth and then I lost a one-year-old and then I lost a two-year-old and I lost a three-year-old. Oh my God. And I looked at her and she said, and every single one that I lost, <clears throat> the more time I had with them, the harder it was to let go, the harder, the harder it has been for the life that I'm living today. But it was, you know, one of the gifts, I think, and this is something that I'm hearing again, is once these stories are out, they invite more stories out. But in a community like mine, where so much happened because of a singular war, the fact that these women have survived, grant these losses a different kind of um, position. And by writing this book, or by entering into these conversations, I feel at times like I am changing the position of, of these losses in the lives of these women who have raised me, and also the women I'm becoming. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot. I mean, I, I feel like so many stories in this book, it's like, you know, <laughs> it's about, I mean, I hate to say it this way because it makes it seem like losing a child um, losing a pregnancy isn't a big deal, but, you know, it's about so much more than that. You know, it's, <laughs> um, so many of the stories are about structural and institutional racism, uh, in the healthcare system, yes. you know, and so many of the stories are, you know, Sonia, when I read your piece, I mean, your piece is about obviously, um, you know, a lot of different things, but, you know, that was the first piece that Kalia and I had read about, uh, from a Muslim perspective, um, mm -hmm. on losing a child, right? And what uh, you and, and your, your husband and your family went through trying to feel like that life was honored. For me, it worked on, on two, le two levels, but other levels too. But I think for me, the person who is carrying the child who is pregnant feels the enormity of that life the most at first, right? Because you know you're you're carrying this baby, this this life within you, and everyone else just you know your family members, etc., um, your husband, etc. They they just hear that okay you're pregnant. They can't really see anything. They can't feel anything. Nothing is changing in their bodies. And I don't. And I think sometimes for a lot of men, it's not till they see the bump or they feel movement or or hear the heartbeat that it suddenly becomes real. And then really becomes real once once you're you're much further ter uh, term um, and, and perhaps once the baby comes out. So, I mean, I, I lost, uh, I'd, I'd had miscarriages before and this particular one, you know, on the, on, I started bleeding on the morning of the third month and I didn't panic or anything. I just thought it was just another miscarriage and I was like, okay. And I just returned from um, the gym and I went to the doctor just to, you know, I was expecting to be told it's not there. And then when she said that the heartbeat is still there, this had not happened before. So this was a shock to me. And suddenly it became more precious that this was, 
you know, and then that carried on for a month. And it was a difficult month because because it's just you I at least felt very alone because um there were so many emotions as 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 a mother or even as a pregnant mother you try to keep your child safe as best as you can and then when we're in these precarious circumstances where we suddenly can't what it means to be a mother and what it means to carry a child in safety as well as keeping perhaps the children that you already have safe everything starts to just um uh you start to question a lot of things but but then the added layer, you know, and, and then once it happened, I, I miscarried at four months and actually into my hands. It was very traumatic for so many different reasons than my previous miscarriages. But I thought I'd put it to rest. And then a month afterwards, I get a call from the, uh, you know, from, from the perinatal clinic. And they say that their remains and what do I want to do with them? And everything just came rushing back. And, and you know, as as a Muslim, actually, I had not realized this, or I had, but it hadn't really, it, it hadn't, I, the impact, it hadn't had an impact yet that uh, Muslims believe that the soul doesn't enter um, a fetus until four months, 16 weeks. And since I was right at the cusp, like no one could pinpoint whether it was, you know, 15 and one day or six, you know, uh, when we called a mosque to ask about burial stuff, they said that, well, since they don't know if it was completely 16 weeks, it, it wasn't a lot you know what there was no soul there it wasn't and that was just the double trauma of being told that the baby that I'd given a name to bought socks for you know had um had grieved for so badly was really not considered a human being a child that double trauma was very 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 terrible and then he went on later to be um buried in a mass urn and that brought up all sorts of things also. So just you talked about layers and Muslim background and stuff. Yeah, it was it was a very, very traumatic experience one after the other. Yeah, it was the miscarriage, then it was the burial, then it was where he was finally going to be buried. And it was just um, for a long time, I just, you know, every time I thought I was healing a little bit, there would be another hammer. And um, it was very tough, very tough. Thank you for sharing that, Sonia. Um, we we had another submission, which we ultimately decided that we, we could not take because we uh, wanted to keep the focus uh, on indigenous and women of color. Uh, but we had uh, a submission from a, a Jewish woman who um, unfortunately had a loss that I think it was around 37 weeks. And um, reading your piece, Sonia, the response of the the rabbi, you know, again, I I, I don't, um, I, I I'm not an expert at all on the particulars of either the Muslim faith or the Jewish faith, but the similarities in the responses of 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 these sort of like elders in in those religious communities and how devastating um, that was to both you and her. Um, I mean, I think she actually ended up leaving Juda Judaism because of it. And that was just something that was a layer, you know, I'm a, I'm a Buddhist, but it's, it's just different. It's more secular for me. That was a layer that I, I had not anticipated, you know, um, coming across or dealing with and putting this together. Um, another piece that I hadn't anticipated reading through the pieces was this idea of what Seema brought up because we don't talk about these things, whatever they are, um, these traumas usually, um, you think that you're, you sort of keep these secret torturous thoughts to yourself, right? And this thought that 
it's my fault. I, I could have done something, right? In my case, mm -hmm. I had a stillbirth at 41 and a half weeks, right? And so there was no cause of death, right? They never determined ultimately the cause of death, like in many, many stillbirths. And I, it just kept on going through my mind. Like I did go in, right? But I should have gone in, you know, at a week and I should have, a week after she was due and I should have told them that, you know, they had to induce and I, you know, I should have done this and I should have done that. Like, and it sounds so banal to say, right, right now, but then somehow I didn't understand that that was like a shared experience of women who go through this, you know, reading the first person accounts. Um, so many women have that same sense of profound guilt laced with the loss. And that actually was so healing for me. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense, but mm -hmm. it was. Yeah, no, this is this is Sonia again, just to go back a moment to what you said, the whole thing about a, a mother, and it, it certainly brings up what it means to be a mother before you have, a, you know, a baby in your arms, because everyone can immediately tell you're a mother then and that this is a baby and everyone wants to protect your feelings, the baby's feelings, life, etc. But like you're saying, in, in cases like this, who has the agency to tell someone at what stage that baby had life and meaning and didn't? And and that really, that, that was very unsettling, you know, in, in all cases, in, in a lot of the stories that I was reading, which is, you know, how what does it mean to be a mother when your emotions are so strong, but when others are not honoring those emotions and saying that, you know, it, it's okay and you can have another and you can get over it and it wasn't meant to be and stuff like that from different religious perspectives. Yeah. I think that it, it resonates so strongly. You know, similarly, um, for so many of us as, as indigenous women and women of color, there's this mantle of strength that we're expected to wear. You know, how many men have come up to me after the experience of this collection and said, my mother had miscarriages, she was so strong. For me, part of the power of this collection is that we're crying, we're weeping. There is no trying to be strong in writing these stories. From my own experience of writing my own story and then my mother's story for this collection, my story felt like a dream and writing my mom's story felt like waking up in a nightmare. I remember the first time reading the submissions as they were coming in, along with Shannon gave me crying and crying for all of the babies that were lost, that have been lost throughout time, and somehow those tears became the tears to the babies now in cages at the borders. You know, the ones taken away by their, you know, by white colonists, the native babies, or the ones African-American babies taken away to become slaves, or Hmong babies taken to become soldiers, soldiers in a war that could never benefit them. That was for me incredibly liberating. Just to say, I'm hurting, we've all been hurting. And I don't care what you think. Right, because we're socialized as women to take care of other people first, right? I mean, that's what that whole strength thing is about, right? They wouldn't, <laughs> they wouldn't be praising us for being strong, quote unquote, if we were being strong and taking care of ourselves first or nobody else, <laughs> you know, which is what men are socialized to do. 
Right. The discomfort, this is Seema, the discomfort with other people's discomfort is, right, if we were being strong in a way that, that didn't let them stay comfortable. And when I received the anthology, I thought I had, I thought I had done my deep weeping already. It had been many years. But when the anthology arrived, I took it to bed. I was alone. And I read it and wept in a way that was so different from all of the other times I had wept along those lines of like, I was weeping not just for my loss, but for the universality of the loss and not feeling like, not feeling like it was a burden on other people, my grief, right? Like being part of this act of grief together with all of you across space. I hadn't met anybody um, else who was in the anthology at that time. But it just felt so like, oh, this is a line that I'm connected to, a global sort of web that I'm connected to. Um, and that was a really beautiful, powerful thing. Yeah, and just, I had a similar, oh, this is Jamie. I had a similar experience when I read the anthology as well of just being able to say that we're everyone in this book is acknowledging these these losses that often are just not acknowledged or not taken seriously. Um, and just the connections that that you were talking about, not just to our losses, but to, to the things that are happening nationally. And I think one thing that I connected to now is this idea of feeling like people aren't taking your baby seriously or that your loss is not a baby. And I think that for me was one of the hardest parts after my miscarriage of people thinking like, oh, it's it's just a miscarriage or feeling like I had to feel like that, that I was wrong for grieving. And I remember talking about it with my therapist and my therapist said something offhand about like, oh, it's 10 weeks. It's, it's not really a baby. And I was devastated because that was like in therapy. And she was saying something like, oh, you know, someone, another of her clients had lost a baby, you know, in a stillbirth. And that was really a baby, but that mine didn't have a soul and just all these different things um, that <laughs> were not helpful at the time. Um, and here in this book, I felt like it's a place where my my grief could be seen and where it was acknowledged and allowed in a way that didn't make me feel like I had to be guilty or that I was selfish for being sad and for being upset about this loss, this loss of, you know, all this possibility. I think that was one of the most powerful things to me when I was reading, when I was reading it. Going, going back to the guilt thing. Uh, my, my daughter hasn't, hasn't been in school since January. We, we went to the U S for Christmas and new years and we came back. Coronavirus had been in the news here, but uh, it, it sort of exploded and um, they closed. Like it was a week after we got back. They, um, locked everything down and then a few weeks later they shut down the border and one of the things that you know that they also did was uh not allow kids out into public spaces so it's uh only a couple weeks ago that my daughter got to come with me to the grocery store again and so it's been intense because she's you know she she's sick of you know she was sick of me and I was sick of her we were having this sort of um, tension and she started bringing up the fact a lot uh, repeatedly like you know I wish I wasn't 
the an only child. I wish my brother hadn't died, and and just just hitting me with all this stuff. And I was just like, oh God, like I could could it get any worse? Um, and and she also is aware. You know, we talked about it more actually after after the book and um, after I got a chance to read other stories and sort of process things and 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 you know echoing a lot of. Uh, other other people's impressions and, and and feelings when they did so, but um, so yeah, we in the last you know year or so we've talked a lot more about all of what it entails. And um, in my instance, it was it was a hysterectomy that followed um, the delivery of my son. And you know, I I've spent the last few years feeling like you know the weight of that and just you know. The, the fact that there's there's no hope that this body's gonna make another baby you know and, and that's done um and my daughter understands that and you know when so when she says it of course you know she's seven she doesn't know the weight of that guilt and the weight of her words but oh my god was I glad to get her back out into the world and and interacting <laughs> And, and not just having to be, you know, stuck with her and her, her only child misery. <laughs> I feel that keenly. There's um there's a house in our block and it we visited when we were looking for homes. It's on sale at the same time as our house. And when we visited, I was pregnant with the twins. Uh, I had four identical twin boys who are four going on five. And my we were to pass the house and we started talking about our visit there. And the boys said, Oh yeah, we've been in that, inside that house. And I'm like, you were inside of me. And they said, No, mommy, in the baby world. And I said, What do you mean? And they said, In the baby world, mommy, when you were inside that house, there was another little boy. My heart, my poor heart started hammering. I thought, what are they gonna say to me? And they they were both nodding and they're like, There was another little boy. He was a ghost boy, mommy. And he wanted to come, but we we chased him away. We said, we said no. There's two of us already, and we're here, and we're not going to live here with you. So we chased him away. And, of course, you could just see bantering among among children, of course, and their imagination. But in my heart, I was hammering so fast. I thought, what are they going to tell me? What, what happened inside that place of the baby world, inside of me? And I, maybe for the rest of so many of our lives, there will always be these moments when Things will be said in our lives or around us, or we'll start wondering if there's a clue there somewhere, or if there's there's a way into the space of leaving. I'm not sure how it is for um, the rest of you, but yeah, with these little guys, every time they bring up the baby world, I'm tense. I'm I'm very open with them about the loss of baby jewels, and I try to I try to um, explain as best I can how these things uh, go in life. But when they start explaining the world before they are part of mine to me, I'm like, what are they going to say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they have a kid's, a child sensibility, right? I mean, as Sonia was talking about, you know, they're not in your body. They didn't carry the baby. It just, they have a different relationship to it. You know, my kids, um, the, their sister that died, her name was CNA. And they constantly, you know, if CNA were here now, we would have to get a new car because there's no way we could fit her in here. 
if CNA were here now, she'd probably like these hot dogs. If CNA were here now, she could stay, you know, in my room and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And um, it's become part of our family story, I think, in a very healthy way. Um, but it does, as Kalia is talking about, it's like a knife in your heart. You yeah. know, you're just going about your day and then you're like, oh my God, you know. You know, I, I, I think what also for me struck me was that my kids were uh, much younger when this happened. They were around, this is Sonia, they were in um, kindergarten and first grade or so. And, um, and uh, you know, and just to tell them or explain, because we had, you know, the ultrasound picture was up on the, on the fridge and we'd named him. And because the doctors kept telling me that he's going to come out and be playing soccer before I know it. So, you know, to tell, to tell kids at that age is so different from telling older kids. And I think I, they, they, they try to process it differently. And as I say in my essay, my, my son um, had uh, his best friend, his father had passed away. And so I was able to explain it to my son in terms of, you know, the baby's gone where Dylan's father is. But I think having written the essay and then seeing them read it when they were older and seeing their names on the page and seeing his name on the page. I mean, there's a life that the page gives that is very unexpected also because suddenly they are alive in the page and in our memories, but also when others read that, when family members read it or friends or even strangers read it, for a moment that, that life that was there so fleeting comes back to life, so to speak, if that makes sense. And I think for my children watching, you know, watching their them process it when they were so little and then watching them process it when they were older and able to read themselves on the page and see themselves in the story in the fa in this in our family story that is that had taken place and really i actually i was able to have um a child after my miscarriage and um you know that brings up its own interesting conversations like you know my this is so hard but um you know, like when that child asks, because it's on, I've written an essay about this miscarriage, it's on paper, there's no, you know, so when that child, the first time that child asks, well, if you'd had, you know, if you hadn't miscarried, would I have come? It's a very, very difficult question to, um, to know how to answer really, in all its complications. And it makes everything so much, it just brings, it just brings an added pain in a way, if that makes sense. Um, you know yeah i think um this is michelle I, what, what i didn't think about when it would when it happened was that that you know my daughter would be grieving too it's a whole other thing and, and i you know part of me is got you know when you talk about your kids being able to read it i i'm i'm excited for that day but i'm also like terrified you know of, of putting more baggage <laughs> <laughs> onto onto my daughter, you know, to understand what what that experience was. But um, the beauty of the anthology is that she's not just going to be reading my stories; she's going to be reading all these other all these other women's stories to know that, that this is something that happens, you know, and how how it, how it happens, um, you know, differently and yet uh, the same. And also, I mean, I think the other thing is like, you know, kids 
yeah, it is scary to think about just kids, your kids maturing, right? And sort of, you know, because we know how hard and frankly, often brutal the world can be, right? Um, and and some of the things that, that we've had to carry um, being in it. But at the same time, it's like, even if my kids were experiencing something differently than me, it's like, they, they always know, you know? Like kids always know um, when, when something is afoot. And I know this is not true for everyone, but I think for me, it, it has been cathartic to write the stories down, you know? Um, in different contexts, um, and I, because I share, I share the stories with my children too. I haven't shared the essay in here with them. They're still too young. They're five and they're ten. Um, but I, I have, I have written a children's book called "Where Is My Sister," um, and I, I read that to them, the draft, and they, they, they really liked it. You know, it was a good conversation. I have. Three younger sisters, and they were all at the um, at the initial launch events. And I, I saw them weeping in the audience. But when I talked to them about it, they said, "We wish we would have. We wish we could have read this in college. It would have tied so many strings together." And I I just looked at them, you know, as their older sister who loves them very much. I of course never want them to have to go through what I've been through, what all of us have been through. But I also know, because I know what happened to me, I know what happened to all of you, that these things happen regardless of where we are, regardless of who we are. It happens disproportionately to Indigenous women and women of color. And because these are three young women of color, I'd rather they knew than didn't, than live their lives without the knowing. And I think that conversation, I'm raising children of color, and so we're talking about this moment in history in very different ways than, than the family across our street who are raising white kids in a predominantly white neighborhood, in a predominantly white city, in a predominantly white state, in a predominantly white country, in a world where the power is disproportionately taken by white folk. And I'd rather my kids know than not know and somehow chance upon it and fall and the flames that I know are waiting to consume them. I think that's part of the power of this book. And I mean, one book can't do everything and it can't be um, everything to all people. What about Shakespeare, Shannon? Just joking with you. Okay, you can dog out Shakespeare on your own time. That's one <laughs> white man whose work I love. <laughs> um, <laughs> true talk. Um, but, um, but I, you know, I feel like we we make the books we tell the stories that you know it's a starting place and so again what i said before i mean i do i hope the book opens up space um and another one of my friends um queer black woman has a daughter um by partnership um has never given birth or been pregnant but she said you know just the fact that you all said no, we think this is a, a topic that is important enough to take be within an entire book, right? We're going to have an entire book on this topic. Is that important? She said, it, you know, it gives you pause. And that's, that's a powerful statement, you know, particularly as women and particularly as 
you know, we know the genre of memoir uh, <laughs> since the Enlightenment forward has been, you know, dominated by white men. And so what does it mean to really not only center that, those first person narratives in that genre in the voices and experiences of women of color and indigenous women, particularly talking about pregnancy and infant loss. This is Michelle. When, when, when I lost my son, um, a friend, she was my, my best friend in, in fifth grade or sixth grade. And then up through, up through seventh grade. And I hadn't talked to her in years. Um, we, we spoke a little bit when we were in college and somehow through the grapevine, she had heard, um, about what happened and sent me, um, empty cradle, broken heart, I think is the name of the book. Um, something like that. And I didn't touch it. I, I, I still, I've never read, I've not read a single page of it. Um, all the way through. I, I opened, I opened up one page. Um, yeah, I opened it to one page and I read it and it wasn't for me. It wasn't written for me. Um, it wasn't my story. It wasn't anything like I just knew. And I just, I, I, I but you know, it's weird because it, it's again, it, it's like the, the weird feelings of guilt. Like she, she had tried, you know, she had put herself out there to say, um, you know, I feel your loss. I, uh, she, she said that she had experienced many miscarriages. Like that was something for, for, for a couple of years where I was just like, uh, I'd like to read something, you know, <laughs> like there's, there's, um, I, I don't, I don't have a therapist here. Um, I didn't have the kind of community I had, uh, in the U S so, you know, I would, I would normally go to a book or something like that, um, to, to, to sort of work through things or hear things and try to make sense of things. And um, I'm thrilled, you know, I mean, I, I, I hate that this book exists, you know, just on, 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 on principle and in the fact that, you know, these things happened and we, ha and we wrote about them. Um, but I'm also uh, incredibly grateful that, you know, if uh, there's a woman like me out there, which I know there, there is, and, and will be, um, you know, that they'll, they'll see that there's a book, that is for them and, and represents a voice or uh, shares a voice that, that represents um, their experience. And there's a political aspect of this, that, you know, this, this book that I was sent doesn't even dare to acknowledge, you know, it, it's not about that. Right. It's just about, yeah, I, I don't even know. I can't, I can't speak for the book. I can't say what that book is about. Right. I've, I've not read a full complete page, but it just, there, there's an industry for this right like there's a whole series of books that have been written about this and this is the first that that um tells a different story yeah there's a lot of like over very religious very christian yeah. um and also just very um i don't know using a lot of language that i feel is very overused and familiar you know my angel you know the empty cradle, broken heart, you know, like, what does that mean now? You know, like right. to me, like the stuff that's just been, it's been used so many times that it doesn't mean anything, right? I wanted something again. And people asked Kali and I about the, the meaning of the title. Like, well, why did you title it that? And, you know, you go back to, you know, Kalia's story of encountering this line in this amazing Lucille Clifton poem, um, 
and sharing it with me and, um, and both of us feeling like this is it, you know, <laughs> that moment in the middle of the night, right. Where it just is like your soul is howling. Right. And, but there's nobody there to hear it. Your baby is dead, you know, and there's no bringing them back, you know, what, and, and then you just, you know, you ask, you ask the wall, what God is honored here. You know, what is this place that we've come to now? What God is honored here. And I wanted something that, you know, really talked about what happens in your body, right? I mean, it's not pretty <laughs> for, you know, and, and, and when, when you go through something like this, the platitudes just don't suffice. They just don't work. And for me, that also has to do a lot with how like whiteness is constructed, right? And we're, you know, it's this like repressive force. Um, and that's what at least I encountered in a lot of the, the literature about this topic when I went through my loss. And, you know, I'm a writer, that's what I do. I'm a you know, reader and writer. It's like, I try to, I have an experience and then I try to find writing that speaks to that experience. And I just was finding nothing. Similarly to the title, I think one of the hardest things for us in terms of the publishing of this book, I don't know if, uh, if you all knew, but was the cover. All of the covers that were presented, Shannon and I just felt we, we didn't want all of our stories wrapped in pastels. We didn't want it wrapped in dripping blood. We didn't want a photo of autumn and a still late. And so the cover that we have, I stumbled upon a, a good poet friend is also a wonderful photographer. And he had this photo of this, this river surging where the mist meets the falling snowflakes. And finally, because we couldn't come up with the right cover, no cover seemed to could do it. Um, Shannon and I both agree that maybe this cover would, would somehow speak to something that we've all felt before. It works. Well, well, well chosen. Yeah, people have told me that they have a, a visceral reaction to looking at the, the cover, which is what, I, what we wanted. Yeah, I, I, this is Sonia. I'd love to know if, you know, now that it's been out for a while, what you might have done differently with it and, um, you know, what your, what your, what the responses have been that you've liked or, uh, you know, just, just in general, both Kalia and, and, and Shannon, because as the editors, I'm, I'm assuming most of the responses and everything come to, come to you guys. So what have you been finding overall? So the book now, it's nearly been a year. I was scheduled to give a talk at the Mayo Society, and this is going to be the book that we were going to focus on. They were going to get a copy for a lot of the medical personnel who is a part of the society. Of course, that talk has long been canceled. But one of, I think, Shannon and my, one of our hopes is to get this book into the actual practitioner, the, the doctors and the medical students and the nurses and the midwives and the actual caretakers and caregivers. Um, part of the problem, yes, but necessarily part of the answer. We we were very hopeful of that. Thankfully, Shannon Gibney, and this is the this is one of the truths. I am so happy that we are we Shannon and I worked on this book as a team. We're a wonderful team because we're wonderfully different, but we're also wonderfully um Shannon would say we were all hustlers, all of us. <laughs> We're all I mean, we can't get anywhere as women, as, as native and women of color. Like we can't get anything if we don't hustle. This is the way it is. 
So, so Shannon and I will be presenting at Wayne State Medical School on this text and this work. I think that this book belongs in the hands of students. Unfortunately, most uh, higher, most professors are male. Uh, and, and so the, the book isn't quite traveling as far in terms of teaching capacity as I would like. In a different world, I do a lot of public talks and I would focus on this book. And part of being a woman of color is always the things that I say and the things that I work on are never quite what people expect of me. So I'm planning, because I believe in the life of this book. I, I, I believe that it will live long, long, long beyond all of us. And it is a groundbreaking collection. This book is incredibly relevant to our current moment. You know, we are talking about equity. We're talking about racism. We're talking about all of the things that we've been needing to talk about that within our circles, we've individually been trying to speak about as a nation for the very first time in a very long time. And so I think that the work that the book needs is only still beginning. With that aside, every time we give a talk, every time I meet anybody and they've had experience with this book, they say, how can I tell my story? Just this morning, Shannon and I were on a call together and, um, and a woman, African-American woman said, Shannon, give me, teach me how to, teach me how to write my story. Hmm. So the, the book, maybe we're looking at the first edition. Maybe this is going to become a much bigger book in time. What do you think, Shannon? Yeah, no, I mean, I think as usual, you said it really well. It's really just the beginning, you know, and I think it's just so much of the deep work, deep cultural work is about relationships. And it just takes time to to cultivate those relationships. I mean, the reason why we're doing the Ground Bonds talk for the OBGYN residents at Wayne State Medical School is because my mom is really, it's her really good friend that she worked with as a nurse in the NICU at University of Michigan Hospitals for years. Her daughter um, is a third year in that program. And um, my mom, you know, gave her friend a copy of the book. He passed it on to this woman who, you know, a majority of their, um, patients at Wayne State, you know, in Detroit are lower income, basically like poor black women. Their pregnancies do not, I mean, they have very bad maternal health um, and neonatal outcomes, right? And so she recognized like, wow, this is something that's so relevant that nobody talks about that we need, we need to talk about. And I don't know if I told you this, Kalia, but my mom's friend, Kalia and I said that we didn't want to be paid. We just wanted... <laughs> Um, each resident who will be at the talk to get a copy of the book. And so this young woman's mother bought 50 copies of the book <laughs> and donated them to um, the program to make that possible, which was just amazing. But it's those kinds of things that, you know, it just, it takes, it just takes time. So I feel like it's like the book is penetrating in certain communities um, as I said, I've, I've been hearing from friends and other people, acquaintances, et cetera. You know, people have written me out of the blue and gone out of their way to be like, oh my God, thank you so much for this book. I never wanted to need it, but I need it so bad right now. Um, and they have shared the most personal harrowing stories, you know, uh, with Kalia and I. It's just, it's just so moving. And I, I do feel like in Minnesota, we've gotten a, a lot of traction just because that's where 
Klee and I are based and, you know, now people now know who we are, et cetera. Nationally, I think definitely we'd like to see, you know, just some more connections made. But I, I do feel like um, we're hitting our stride. Um, a lot of folks in the anthology are hitting their stride. And so the book isn't going anywhere. You know, it's like it's going to it's going to kind of like travel with us as our, our careers go forward as well. So I feel, I do feel like it's going to be a very slow snowball um, to get a, yet another metaphor in the mix. One thing that I think Anna and I both agree on is that we, the situation have been a stronger team of writers. It was super important to both of us that this collection be literary, that the writing be exquisite. And it, and it is. And all of you are so wonderful. Um, you know, the, the individuals that we found to me, and I like Michelle, this is the first time we're hearing your voice, and it's even more badass than I imagined. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so this is just, it's been a gift, a friendship, a sisterhood that stretches the globe, made a phenomenally smart, thoughtful, deeply feeling women. That's yeah. been the biggest gift. Yeah. Yeah, it's been incredible. And just that, you know, also to plug the press, the support for the press, we were able to bring um, a good portion of the contributors in for the book launches. Um, we had um, two big events and it was so powerful and moving. And I mean, after I read part of my piece, I was the last reader at the one in St. Paul at St. Catherine University. And I mean, I just broke down crying and kind of like what Simo was saying it was a different kind of crying though you know <laughs> because it was just like these are people who get it at the deepest level of getting it right and I don't have to worry that I'm being a burden to them I don't have to worry that like they're not going to get it they, I mean I don't none of that none of that was there so it does feel like a sisterhood when we came from the white editor Eric Anderson he's a white guy he's experienced his own his own losses, but that he also just believes in the trajectory of our vision for the book, and then all of their all of all of the writers in the book. It's not very often that you get an editor who believes in your vision for something, and then the team that you're bringing to the table. And, and so it's really been that in that way we've been really fortunate and gifted. The press, the editor, the team. I think that when we think back to this book, all of us, when we think about the body of our work, we'll all be very proud when all is said and done. You know, when I think about the body of my own work, you know, I'm incredibly, I'm incredibly moved by this book. It's not a book that the world is excited to read, people. It's not a book that people are clamoring to hear, but it is a book of truth. It is a book of necessity. That is the highest standard that any writer can aspire toward in terms of communicating what this humble human experience is like. So no regrets, no sorrows there. <laughs> I just want to thank you all so much for taking time and sharing your, your stories and your views. So thank you again. For more information, please visit z.umn.edu forward slash WGIHH.